On the night of the 29th of March, 1922, locals in Ballycotton, a small fishing village outside of Cork City, witnessed a spectacular sight. Hundreds of men were unloading weapons from a warship onto cars, trucks and lorries. One woman, a self-described loyalist, dashed off a letter to the British General Strickland in Cork saying, there's a German warship at Ballycotton with a cargo of war materials of all sorts. There's about a thousand men unloading her and hundreds of motors carrying it all over the country. I'm afraid Lloyd George took the troops away too soon. But what was happening was not in fact a German landing, but rather an audacious raid carried out by the anti-treaty IRA on the Royal Navy's arms ship, the Upnor. The raid on the Upnor took place at a time when tensions between the pro and anti-treaty factions were building and dramatically changed the anti-treaty IRA's position. They were now well armed, a fact which greatly worried the provisional government. A new book from Mercier Press, The Bally Cotton Job, an incredible true story of IRA pirates, tells this story for the first time. I'm joined by the author, historian Dr Tom Mahan. Tom, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Great to chat to you. Now, the story of the Upnor raid is actually not very well known. It probably should be a lot better known, but it's it's a crucial moment in the lead-up to the, the Civil War. Let me ask you, first of all, what was it that piqued your interest in this story? Well, Miles, it's such a fascinating story, and as you said, it's never been told fully before. And I came across just brief mentions about it in books about the Civil War. But actually, I first heard about it when I was a kid growing up in Dublin. And every summer we used to go down to Cork to stay with my grandparents. And my grandfather, Tom Croft, was a very warm, jovial man. He smoked a pipe and always had a twinkle in his eye. And he had an old brass ship's telescope with a single eyepiece. And it was rather like what you'd expect Blackbeard or Captain Kidd to have. And we used to play with that. And then my mother told me the story that he had actually been part of a small group that captured a Royal Navy ship. So this was very exciting to me as a young kid to think that there was actually a pirate in the family. And it wasn't really until many years later that I learned the full story of the capture of the Upnor and I felt I had to tell it. So putting the story together was a very slow process. It it involved an awful lot of archival research Um, But I was very fortunate to find the Royal Navy official report and numerous interviews with the participants scattered across many archives. So I presume your your uh, your grandfather Tommy must have had an eye patch if he was a, a, a genuine <laughs> pirate. Um, now, before we get into the story of the raid, explain what was the relationship between Michael Collins and the Cork IRA at this stage. Yes, that, that's very important and crucial to the story. There was actually overall a rather fraught relationship. On the one hand, there was great recognition of Michael Collins's tremendous ability, his leadership and his intelligence. On the other hand, Collins in Dublin was restrained by uh, the moderates among the Sinn Féin leadership. So the fighters in Cork felt they didn't get sufficient support from him. And there was also a lot considerable concern among uh, the Cork leadership about the high living in Dublin. Uh, Michael Collins and associates, they were drinking most nights in Devlin's pub on Parnell Street. They were dining at the Gresham and they were going off to the races. So this didn't seem like a real war where it was uh, much tougher in, in Cork City. But one of the main sources of contention was over the supply of arms and ammunition. 
Collins, as Minister of Finance in the Doyle government, raised a huge sum of money in Republican bonds, equivalent to at least 20 million euros today. But very little of that money was used to smuggle in weapons for the IRA in the South. The Cork City IRA got a shipment of revolvers from him during the War of Independence, but otherwise only a handful of rifles and a small amount of ammunition. And much of this they actually had to buy. So this was another source of tension between the two. Talk to me a little bit also about this very, very interesting figure and somebody who on many levels couldn't have been more different from Michael Collins. And that was the officer commanding the IRA in Cork City, Sean O'Hegarty. Sean O'Hegarty is a fascinating character. He was a very rigid, um, ruthless person, but also extremely honest and straightforward. He was um, a Fenian, and so he was very 19th century in his outlook, but he was very adaptable and able to use what was then modern technology. So he was a ruthless very capable leader. And actually, and he led Cork One, which was the uh, largest IRA brigade, and he was the successor to Thomas McCurtain and Terence McSweeney. But um, he, for instance, was worried about the threat posed by informers. So he ended up executing or disappearing more suspected informers than any other IRA leader in the country. Most controversially, he was responsible for the execution of Mrs. Lindsay. Yes. Um, I think that was a terrible episode. Mrs. Lindsay was a loyalist who, I wouldn't use the term informed because she felt it was the right thing to do, but she went to the army and reported an IRA ambush. And this led to the capture of several IRA volunteers and their execution. And Sean O'Hegarty, without getting permission from headquarters in Dublin and Michael Collins, executed or shot, had uh, Miss Lindsay shot, and he never reported this back to Dublin. So this was another cause of a discord between Michael Collins and John O'Hegarty. Now, one of the other major characters in this uh, story, he's introduced right at the beginning of the book. He's, uh, he's reading the newspaper, which is of major significance, as we, as we will see. Admiral Gaunt, Admiral Ernest Gaunt. Tell me about him. Well, Admiral Ernest Frederick Augustus Gaunt was from Australia and um, he was one of the first Royal Navy admirals from Australia. So there was great pride in him. And he had a very distinguished colonial service and he fought at uh, Jutland in 1916 with great valour. He actually married a lady, Lady Louise, who was one of the Martins from Ballyvaughan and she grew up in Gregan's Castle. But Gaunt in Ireland was out of his depth and he still felt he was in the colonies and he significantly underestimated the threat he faced from Sean O'Hegarty and the IRA. And during the War of Independence, obviously in Cork, Cork was a hotbed of the, of the War of Independence and of the, the military were targeted, the RIC and particularly the RIC in the form of the Black and Tans and the Ogsies uh, were targeted. But Cork had a huge naval presence. Were there many attacks on the Navy during the War of Independence? Well, the IRA were very active, particularly in Cove, but they avoided any direct attacks against the Navy personnel. And the Navy wasn't perceived as a direct threat. Plus, they were very integrated into Cork. Uh, families, uh, many from nationalist backgrounds, for instance, served in the Royal Navy. So 
there was no animosity and it was felt they were not a legitimate target. But what we do instead see that in the huge naval dockyards at Hall Bowline, we see IRA sympathisers working in the workshops, making bomb parts, repairing guns, and they were stealing guns left, right and centre from ships. The IRA leader in Cove, Mick Burke, did at one stage blow a hole in a destroyer undergoing a refit in Hull, Hull Bowline. And another time he actually sank five British sloops in the harbour uh, by opening their sea valves. Now, the Civil War hadn't begun at this stage when the Upnor raid takes place. Um, so I suppose my, my question is, was this something that was opportunistic? Because basically the British are pulling out, um, British weapons, British arms are loaded onto this ship. It is heading back uh, to, to Britain. Did the IRA in Cork have much chance to plan or was it just purely opportunistic? Well, an informer in Hall Bowline told Sean O'Hegarty that this ship, the Upnor, is being loaded with munitions on its way back to Plymouth. And so O'Hegarty got his group, who were known as O'Hegarty's crowd, together, and they spent about two weeks planning this. And then they were on standby, ready to go for another two weeks. There were about 10 people who knew the whole operation and then there were about a thousand people involved who didn't, who only knew their part. So it was a very complex operation. On the morning of Wednesday, March 29th, the IRA in Cork City kidnapped a ship's captain by the name of Jeremiah Collins and they brought him down to Cove. And they sent a second car from Cork City down to the Deepwater Quay where they were to capture a uh, tugboat. And about one o'clock that afternoon, the Upnor left and they still hadn't captured the tugboat. So they were in trouble and they eventually found a tugboat called the Warrior and they boarded her and they set off at three o'clock. So when they left the harbour, there was no sight of the Upnor and they thought the game was up. They thought they couldn't find it. But Captain Collins, who was actually an admirer of Michael Collins, decided to help them. So he told them to sail southeast and they cut off the Upnor. And so sure enough, at six o'clock, they sighted the Upnor and they came alongside her. And then they used a brilliant ruse to get the captain of the Upnor to stop, cut his engines. They then rowed over to the Upnor, jumped on board with uh, Thompson machine guns, revolvers, seized the ship, imprisoned the crew. They brought over an IRA crew from the tugboat who manned the Upnor, they then sailed 55 kilometres towards the fishing port of Ballycotton. But in the meantime, in Cork City, hundreds of IRA men seized 100 lorries and trucks and cars. So it must have been almost every vehicle, mechanised vehicle in Cork. And they brought them, with Sean O'Hegarty in the lead, they travelled 40 kilometres towards Ballycotton. And then... Just north of the town, he called a halt and he waited then. So at about midnight, he saw a flare in the sky. And that was the signal that his scouts on the pier at Ballycotton had sighted the lights of the Upnor and the warrior coming in. So he then drove through the village and went down to the, the pier to meet the Upnor docking alongside. At what point did Ernest Gaunt realise he had a problem? Well, this was, I had to read this a few times to even believe this. Ernest Gaunt was completely unaware of what was happening. 
And he actually read his morning newspaper on the Thursday, the following day, the Cork Constitution. And in it, he saw a small article stating that a tugboat, the Warrior, had been seized in Cove the previous day. And it was only then at 10 in the morning that he realised something was amiss and he went into a panic and he sent out uh, destroyers and telegraphed the Admiralty to search for the Upnor. Now, I mean, this was certainly more of the equivalent of the Larne gun running than the Hoth gun running. They got a lot of weapons, didn't they? Yes, they did. They got in all about 80 tonnes of uh, weapons or 70 lorry loads. So there was about a thousand people working on the pier in Ballycotton. There were IRA men and locals who helped out and um, they worked for close to 10 hours. So that gives you an idea of the quantity. But basically, it was 80 tonnes of weapons out of the 120 tonnes on the ship. It comprised at least 200,000 rounds of ammunition, 1,000 rifles, 39 machine guns, over 700 revolvers, around 2,000 grenades and rifle grenades, and a large quantity of explosives, fuses, helmets, and other equipment. So this ammunition was particularly important and it would have constituted at least 80% of the ammunition that the Cork IRA possessed at the outbreak of the Civil War. And was this weaponry intended just for the Cork Anti-Treaty IRA or did they share it with other anti-treaty units? They would have shared it. They did share it with the Kerry IRA. And of course, Kerry was the site of the most terrible fighting in the Mm. Civil War. And they would have shared it among the other brigades within Cork. Some of it may have gone to the four courts. And it's difficult to say beyond that how much sharing there was. But certainly the weaponry was used in the summer of 1922 in the fighting outside Limerick. I'm sure Ernie O'Malley got his hands on some of it at some stage. Um, What was the response then from, from, first of all, from the British government? And then what was the response from the pro-treaty side, from the provisional government, from Collins and Griffith? Well, they they were horrified and they were just stunned. General McCready said, who was the outgoing British Army commander in Ireland, said that the he had never seen such a gale blowing, that's the words he used, gale blowing in Downing Street, and that the reaction was even greater to that of the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Winston Churchill, who was in charge of Irish affairs, was very worried about the survival of Michael Collins's government, and he immediately made a commitment to arm Collins's national army. So this was a further step along the road to civil war. When General McCready met Collins, he said he found him in a very anxious frame of mind. And in turn, Collins told Churchill that he believed elements within the British military had colluded to arm his opponents within the anti-treaty IRA. And this belief in collusion over the instant persisted among the free state authorities for years afterwards. The other thing that's interesting about it is that there was kind of universal praise for the operation. And um, Winston Churchill said it was a brilliant operation and that the Irish have a genius for conspiracy rather than for government. <laughs> General McCready called it a daring outrage. Even Admiral Gaunt said it was cleverly planned. And the New York Times 
called it a sensational affair. So there was universal praise for the complexity and the success of the operation, and an operation in which no one was killed or hurt and, and not even a shot was fired. Let's just finish really by talking about the two men at the centre of all of this, because there's a huge irony in this. Sean O'Hegarty uh, masterminds to some extent this operation and then himself takes no part in the Civil War. Yes, Sean O'Hegarty sort of had his road to Damascus moment soon after the raid and he realised the full horror of civil war and he also realised the extent of public support for Michael Collins and the treaty. And in a poignant speech to the Doyle a little bit afterwards, several of whose members he had recently threatened to shoot for even supporting the treaty, he said that civil war would break the country utterly and destroy the idea of a republic. And what's interesting about O'Hegarty was that his position came to resemble that of Michael Collins. And while Collins talked about the treaty as a stepping stone to a republic, O'Hegarty said very similarly that when the opportunity comes to set up a republic, it can be set up. And this is the only moment in his whole life that O'Hegarty compromised. And I think it was definitely the right thing to do. And uh, what were the consequences for Admiral Ernest Gaunt? Well, he got what usually happens when you, you commit something of grave incompetence. He was promoted. Of course. He was, he was promoted <laughs> from vice admiral to full admiral. And he was given a further award from the king and he was retired. Churchill and others wanted to court-martial him, but they couldn't have a public uh, court-martial because the incident was so embarrassing. So the Cork IRA are now incredibly well-armed. The Cork anti-treaty forces uh, would have comprised probably about two-thirds of the old Cork IRA. Why, given their early numerical superiority, why, given the extent to which they are now armed, did the anti-treaty IRA in Cork not do better against the pro-treaty forces in the Civil War? Well, the pro-treaty forces were very well led and they had a very clear strategy under Michael Collins and that was to defend the treaty and to defend the idea of a free state. The anti-treaty forces were very disparate. They had different aims. Some, like Tom Barry, wanted to set up a military dictatorship and declare war on the British and others were much more moderate, such as Liam Lynch. So there was no unified strategy. There was also a huge distaste at fighting against fellow Irishmen. And furthermore, they in Cork City, they lost Sean O'Hegarty, who refused to fight with them, and he was a very unifying factor. Also, they were not able to adapt to what became more traditional fighting. They used the weaponry from the up north initially by um, fighting uh, more conventional with heavy machine gun fire, heavy rifle fire. But these were fighters trained in guerrilla warfare, in ambushing, and were not good at this type of fighting. So it was, they were disunited, their heart wasn't in it, and their strategy wasn't even clear. Tom, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, if you want to know more about the fascinating tale of the Upnor arms ship in March 1922, you can read all about it in The Ballycotton Job, an incredible true story of IRA pirates, one of whom was Tom's own grandfather. The book is published by Mercier Press and it'll be available from bookshops in Ireland and online from the 20th of April. The author is my guest, Dr Tom Mahan. Tom, thank you very much indeed for joining us. 
Thank you, Miles.